On episode 240, I'm interviewing Emmanuel Probst, Senior Vice President of Brand Health Tracking at Ipsos. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com. Hi, I'm Jamin, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Emmanuel Probst, author, UCLA professor, and senior vice president of brand health tracking at Ipsos. Founded in 1975, Ipsos is one of the largest global market research and consulting firms with worldwide headquarters in Paris, France. Prior to joining Ipsos, Emmanuel served as the Vice President of Media and Content Domain at Kantar, as well as in leadership roles at Dynata, formerly ResearchNow and in Moment. Emmanuel, thank you very much for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thank you, Jamin, for having me. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to have me on your podcast today. It's an absolute honor having you on the podcast. I have uh, interacted with you professionally you know, over our, our careers in, in um, similar circles. I don't know that we've actually ever done direct business together, but um, uh, I was, you know, the specific topic of today is to talk about your recently released book, How to Build Brands by Fulfilling the Human Quest for Meeting. Um, embedded inside of that title are two words, brand hacks. I'll uh, post a picture of this this book so people can kind of get a better context which I think the the way that you framed the book is is really interesting, you know, just from the cover perspective, because, you know, it's a it's a very I would say it has some powerful theory, but you take it down at a practical level, which is really unique. Actually, I can't think of another book that has that sort of uh, this type of framework and accessibility that your book does. But before we jump into it, I wanted to, to mention, you know, it's interesting to me how I wound up finding out about your book, which was a post from Kristen Luck on on LinkedIn. So she had shared that she was excited about her friend uh, Emmanuel uh, dropping his book, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then from that, you know, I I think I had re- reached out to you. Actually, I know I'd reached out to you through a comment. And you had responded back to me through the comment on LinkedIn. And now all of a sudden, you know, you kind of like fast forward, whatever it's been, 60 days. Uh, you sent me a, a copy of the book. Thank you very much for that. I read the book and said, after reading, I'm like, not only is this highly uh, practical for me in my business right now, but on top of it, I got to get this guy in the podcast. So that's kind of the, the overall journey, which the reason I bring it up is I think it actually has some like direct connection into <laughs> into like that consumer journey into like how you're some of the the theories that you um you well i know it has some of the theories that you you've applied or created and then uh subsequently applied to your own i guess i'll call it business but i'm not exactly sure if that's the correct uh connotation anyway long-winded way of trying to get to our first question and the worst segue i've ever had tell me a little bit about your parents and how they informed your career yeah that's a Great question and, and highly unusual question. And as you may guess, uh, Jamie, I, I grew up in France. I did not grow up in the United States. And my parents were public servants. And so my dad worked for the equivalent of 
the USPS and my mother worked for the equivalent of AT&T. Now, these companies were public at the time. And I think, so how does this relate to marketing and market research? Well, I think it's about being curious. It's about discovering new things. It's about meeting new people. It's about wanting to understand why do people do what they do? So I think that's really the background between my parents' careers and mine. So you grew up in France. What area? Um, I grew up not too far from Switzerland in the eastern region, and I moved to the UK in 2001. So I booked a one-way ticket to London, a train ticket to London on April 15, 2001, and I never envisioned um, coming back. So at the time, it still is, by the way, but London was this very vibrant city, multicultural, lots of arts, lots of different people, um, a lot of energy there. So I was attracted with the light, if you will. Did you have a career or or a job secured? No, and I didn't really speak English, so <laughs> wow. <laughs> so the first few months were very hectic, and to the point that I remember that literally even being Eminem's was a challenge. You know, just to uh, go at a store and go through the checkout process. I mean, every little thing was really challenging for me. So the first twelve months. I worked all sorts of jobs in retail, in restaurants. In, uh, in fact, I'll tell you that I interviewed for Starbucks and I could not work at Starbucks because my English was not good enough. So I worked at a lesser coffee chain uh, that no longer exists <laughs> and that paid less than Starbucks because I couldn't get a job there and Starbucks looked prestigious to me at the time. I couldn't be a barista at Starbucks. Oh, that's that's fascinating. And now, look, think about like your story career. What was your first job in market research? How did you wind up? I mean, you know, going from a coffee shop yeah. to research is a big space. You're, big gap. you're right. And my first job was with Market Probe, and Market Probe at the time had a call center. So at the time, we would do phone interviews, and I was a supervisor there. And the way I got this job is when I started studying for my MBA. I needed to work and I was looking for a part-time job and it was completely random. I found an ad for this job and, uh, <laughs> and I remember going to the interview and they said, why do you think you can do this? And I said, well, that's because I'm an MBA student, which was a little bit, I wouldn't say arrogant, but <laughs> a little bit of a bold <laughs> move <laughs> and, and they gave me the job. And that's really how I started in the industry, ma managing a, a small team in that call center. When I graduated in 2005, that's when I joined Dynata at the time Research Now. One of my pieces of advice I give to um, uh, my MBA students is look around you because everybody in this room is really starting their careers. And if you fast forward mm. 10 to 20 years, these are the executives that are going to be driving businesses, you know, at a regional level or maybe even a global level. And it's, you know, it's, I think if we, if we could see ourselves like that and see our peer groups like that, especially in the early days, I mean, it's easy now, right? But that 
point in our careers, I, I, I really think we would have a lot more intentionality around how we treat each other and then ultimately stay in contact with each other. So anyway, yeah, that's, it's a, it's, it's so fascinating to me seeing the kind of like they started in one specific spot. Like I was doing in-mall intercepts, you were managing uh, a phone room and then, you know, you kind of like fast forward your careers a decade or two and voila, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I just got to get right into the book. Um, I, I'm actually incorporating this book into my, and in full disclosure to my audience, this is like not a, um, uh, he's not paying me anything for the, <laughs> this review, <laughs> except for the free book, I guess. Anyway, so there's a couple of things that really stood out to me. In, and I'm going to include in the show notes a, a specific uh, long-form blog or link to a long-form blog where I talk about the actual application of the different theories into my own business. So I'm really taking a t very, very, very tactical approach to the consumption of, of this particular book. But what I thought was really interesting is that each chapter has a theme which has this guiding principle and then is supported by case studies brand hacks, which are these like gold nuggets, and then some specific takeaways. So like I, I struggle a little bit with uh, ADD, not like from a diagnosis perspective, but it's hard for a book to retain my interest all the way through. And, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, when I first passed through this book, I, I would read, you know, I usually, I also speed read. And um, so I was like plowing through Fascinating, fascinating. But then the takeaway section was really interesting because you could almost process the book by in, in just, I mean, minutes by reviewing the takeaway section. And then I would, you know, suggest kind of looking at the brand hacks. And then if you wanted a deeper dive, you could, you know, so it's, it was interesting that like each chapter was framed in such a way where like, depending on the amount of time that you had, you could pull something very, very valuable out of, out of that particular chapter. What was your inspiration for you know, like reference point for structuring it like this? Well, first, thank you, Jamin, for your great feedback on the book, because obviously this means really a lot to me. And too many books are too hard to read and too complicated and frankly, often too long. The structure for the book is I wanted the book to be practical. And I'll tell you something that might sound unexpected, if you will is if people want to read the book cover to cover, of course, they're welcome to do so. But the book is designed so that people don't have to read it all. That means you can choose to read specific chapters about specific meanings that matter to you personally or to your brand. Or you can choose to read just the consumer psychology part. So for each chapter, we start with, this is why people do what they do. That's uh, what comes from consumer psychology. Or you can choose to read just the case studies. In each chapter, you have case studies on these are the brands that do it right. Or you can choose to read just the key takeaways. And the key takeaways are this is what you guys should do if you want to build brands that are meaningful. Or you can even read just the sound bites. So we have a lot of quotes, a lot of sound bites that are very short, that are outlined in the book, and they come from a very, very wide range of marketers, all the way from Franz Kafka, 
and uh, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, and all the way to the Kardashians, and Kid Cudi, whom is a hip-hop artist. So, in short, this book is designed to be read, but people don't have to read it all. <laughs> right. Well, and, and, and so you think about the overall attention span. I've seen anywhere between 16 to 20 seconds, and you've got to earn the right for consumers' attention. You know, this book does a really good job, uh, to your point, of, of if you want a bite-sized nugget, you can jump in and grab it. And if you're on a flight, like I was the, the time I actually read it cover to cover, you know, then you have that luxury of, you know, processing whatever, I think it's like sub 200 pages, right? So yeah. uh, it's not, it's, it's, yeah, it's exactly 200 pages. So to your point, it's not like a really uh, long read, but you know, the structure of it is what I thought was just, I mean, all it need, it's just, it didn't need anything else, but it felt like it was literally designed for the practitioner, like a, a CMO could read this book, pull stuff out and then apply it to their business within minutes or hours, right? It was just, it's just like, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Really interesting. Is there another book that you have seen that that is structured in a similar way? Well, not really, to be honest with you. What I wanted to do is reconcile academia and the practitioner's world. So there are a lot of academic books that are good, but they're just not digestible and they don't feel very actionable. And on the other hand, you'll find quite a lot of practitioners, books for practitioners, or books written by advertising professionals. And they might be inspirational, and they can be actionable as well. And I don't want to name names because um, I, I do love my fellow writers. But often those books tend to be a little bit shallow from a methodological, theoretical, academic standpoint. So here what I wanted to do was something very practical, very accessible to everyone, whether you're an intern at an ad agency or you're a CMO at a Fortune 50, but also something very robust with some strong academic thinking embedded in the book. So your book covers many, many hacks that brands of all sizes can use to increase uh, customer engagement. One of my favorites was centered around incorporating the arts into your venue or store. Uh, and you actually cited a quote uh, by Daniel Kahneman, and I hope I didn't use his name too bad. Okay, it's, and the quote goes something like this, memories are all we get to keep from the experiences of living, which is such a profound, like we could talk about that the whole episode. How have you seen this done well, and how can you apply that same principle in a digital context? I've seen this done well by the likes of Nike, by the likes of Kiehl's in cosmetic, or in luxury goods by the likes of Stella McCartney. And I see this done well with using neon, for example. Neon is a very old technology. It's very basic. It's gas, glass, and electricity. But neon can be orchestrated in a very artful way. I also see this at retail locations that hire DJs for specific events or showcase a specific photographer. 
as an example. And my point here is I think there is a great opportunity in retail. I very strongly disagree with people who say retail is dead. Retail is, is alive. What's dead is your 200,000 square feet Bloomingdale's, if you will. What's alive is the store experience, is bringing to uh, people to something they could not experience online. And for that, people will be willing to pay a premium for and back to bringing the arts in the store that serves the brand as a differentiator. It serves the brand as an experience you deliver uh, to drive traffic. But importantly, that is also a backdrop for your store because if people like the arts, and when I say the arts, it can be neons, it can be painting, it can be a DJ, it can be um, dancers, it can be all of the above, people will take pictures and post on Instagram and of course, you can insert your brand. And that's how the, the brand, the store can leverage the arts to become meaningful while uh, increasing its reach online. So a good example, Jamin, is Paul Smith. And Paul Smith in Los Angeles has a wall on Melrose Avenue that's painted in pink. And as simple as that sounds, Paul Smith generates hundreds of thousands of digital impressions a week from its physical store, thanks to its uh, so-called Paul Smith's pink wall. So that's giving your customers an opportunity to express themselves artistically because people pose in front of the wall. And that's also a way for you as a retailer to increase your reach because people post these pictures. Now, all of a sudden, you're no longer just a clothing store because there are hundreds, thousands, dozens of thousands of those, but you are a destination. What's interesting about Paul Smith also is connected to the, you know, one of the other walls, the, the pink wall, of course, is the LA Pride wall. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're seeing that more and more with respect to brands picking a lane and then connecting to deeper into culture. But then as a byproduct of that, of course, they're, they're upset, upsetting a different, right, different customer. Are, are you seeing that kind of connection with brands and them being willing to uh, isolate is maybe not the exact, that feels a little too harsh, but mm -hmm. isolate themselves from kind of the anti point of view? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it depends on the brand. Some brands are somewhat polarizing and that's okay. And some brands cannot afford really to be polarizing. So what I mean by this is if you take a brand like Nike, they tend to be bold in their advertising and they tend to make a statement. And that's okay with Nike because the brand is polarizing to begin with. And also Nike doesn't have a large market share well, does not dominate any of the markets they play in. So the point I'm making is people who love Nike, they will still love Nike and they will likely buy more from Nike. People who don't like Nike, they will never buy Nike anyway. So short story, it's okay for Nike to be polarizing and make a statement. And it's easier in a way when you have a 10, 15, max 20% market share in any given vertical. If you're in the shaving category or if you're toothpaste, 
that becomes a lot harder because you need to appeal to the widest possible audience. And here there is a risk, of course, to do one of two things, advertising that's not impactful because if you just say that Lysol is stronger than Clorox, you know, that's just not very meaningful. So either you do advertising that's not impactful or you take a risk and you take a stance. And of course, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but we know of disasters. Uh, We know of Pepsi, for example, that hired Kendall Jenner to stop a Black Lives Matter type of riot with a can of Pepsi. And we all remember how they had to pull the ad within days because it was not credible for Pepsi to say they can stop a riot, um, let alone for Kendall Jenner, whom is a very talented girl by all means, but Kendall Jenner grew up in Calabasas and that's 10 minutes from my house and I can confidently tell you that we've never seen a riot in Calabasas. <laughs> it's a, such a great, it's such a great point. Like on the on the counter side, and then also like done well, done done poorly. You know, you see that with Google. I think in in some ways as well. You know, one of the things that they've done or not done. Sometimes silence can be as loud as as doing something. You know, is around their Easter. So. You know, they don't have any religious uh, mentions, at least that I've seen um, around Easter time relative to their, you know, what you see on Google's homepage. Whereas, you know, you, every every day there's something that's pretty unique and relevant and interesting, uh, you know, across across that particular spot. So, but having said that, you know, they there is no risk of them isolating um, their constituents mm-hmm. because you still see those people that are utilizing the brand. Good point. Absolutely. So in your book, you state this, this is not a quote, uh, you state it's not business, it's personal, which is obviously turning on its head. It's not personal, it's business. The context there is that brands, they need to not just sell you today, they need to sell you tomorrow. So there's a predictive element to, to that kind of customer relationship that they're connecting with you. Where are you seeing this done well? I see this done well in DTC, in direct-to-consumer brands. I'm particularly impressed with those players because they're often, they start way smaller than the large CPG guys, and they don't have any history, if you will. So, I mean, they're often startups, then obviously they get sold, hopefully at some point. But... The reason why I think they do so well is because these brands are good at collecting information. And based on that information at user level, not in aggregate, at user level, to then personalize the message and the relationship. So not so long ago, I heard of a brand called The Farmer's Dog, as an example, and they sell pet food, again, direct to consumers. And frankly, we have dozens of options to buy pet food these days. You can go to Petco and PetSmart and Costco and Walmart, and uh, you can buy some pet food online and so on and so forth. So why do we need another brand that sells pet food? And I feel the answer is because they get very personal about 
that relationship between the pet owner and the brand, on customizing a meal plan for the dog, on asking how the dog is doing. And uh, I was very impressed even when sadly, if your pet passes away, they will send a, a, a personal note to you and they might send you memories of uh, pictures of you with your dog and, and all those things that make the experience so much more personal than going to uh, a big box or a grocery store, or what have you, and buy a ba- to buy a bag of kibbles. Yeah, that that's so. That, and and you think about like it used to be the case that brands would sell to a mass market, and it feels like well, it doesn't feel like it's it's data that now brands are they really just have one customer right, mm-hmm. which is the specific human being that they're they're selling to at that particular point in time. And data is, of course, the thing that unlocks the access to the consumer. Uh, so that you can get to know them and interact with them on a daily basis, see their habits and understand how you can add value as opposed to, you probably remember the days of when we would refer to customers as share of wallet. Yeah. You know, how can we pull more and more out of that wallet? Um, and now it's, you know, McDonald's has done a great job of seeing the customer as a partner and how can we partner with you to maximize your value, you know, for a meal, which is a very different, a different conversation. And I think it's just indicative of the, Totally. The overall thing, but but as you're and as you're so correctly identifying, when you think about like that category of and I've done work for two decades almost with actually over two decades in the in the dog food space, which is hilarious and maybe sad, <laughs> but <laughs> but we but like you're absolutely right when you articulate a a brand promise like you did with the farmer's dog, all of a sudden for me it's this aha moment of how you can how a brand can extend beyond just that kind of, I sell you something and you use it, uh, that sort of commodity and turn it much more into the experience, which subsequently I'm more than happy to pay for. You're right. And that's a great example of leveraging data to build a meaningful brand. Because while people are obsessed with data science and algorithm and big data and, and all those good things, it's it, all what matters is what you do with it. How do you leverage this data to foster a meaningful relationship? And how does that matter to your customer? I think that's where the value is. It used to be the case that the new BMW was our status symbol for success in in happiness in life. But one of the things that you argue, and I've heard this argued before, of course, is that experience and influence are, well, I've heard argued before, experience is the new status symbol but you added in influence, which I thought was really interesting. So how are you seeing this play out with the older demographic, like my targeting me, which you know I grew up with, wow, BMW, that'd be something to attain. And then are brands having to bifurcate their messaging in order to sell successfully to uh, Generation Z and to uh, uh, other generations? Yeah, I think in short, historically, people would rely on material goods to advertise their wealth. So that's a concept we call conspicuous consumption in academia. That means you would rely on a nice watch, a nice handbag, a nice car to show your friends, family, and next door neighbor that you did well. Today, there is less emphasis on ownership, more emphasis on the experience. And Younger generations, I don't really like the term millennials, but let's say younger generations uh, are really all about the experience and less about owning. However, 
here's the great news for brand for brands i should say people still want to touch those nice watches and handbags and nice cars it's just a matter of maybe it doesn't make sense to own so maybe they can rent maybe they can lease and people still love to show how successful they are they do so online they do so on social media and i argue in the book that this traditional concept of conspicuous consumption is now on steroids what i mean by this is a few years ago you would buy a nice car and 20 or 30 people will know about it your neighbors your friends your family now if you drive a nice car and it doesn't matter if you own the car if you drive a nice car hundreds potentially thousands potentially dozens of thousands of people will find out because you post about it on Instagram. So look, I think that's a great opportunity for brands. The difference is in the business model. It might be about giving people access to your products, enable people to rent your product, as opposed to trying to sell it as a standalone. So kind of connected to that, how are you seeing the role of influencer marketing playing out? I mean, it's been, I think Mm -hmm. this year it's, over $2 billion is going to be spent on influencer marketing, which was a category just a few years ago that didn't even exist. Um, And then like connected to that, as we think about market research or user experience or consumer insights, whatever, um, you know, how is that, how is that, how is uh, influencer marketing going to impact our industry? Yes. So the initial promise of influencer marketing is to reduce the social distance between the consumer and the influencer. Let me explain. If George Clooney advertises a product or Victoria Beckham or traditional celebrities, Nicole Kidman, for example, the shortcoming is as a consumer, you don't feel like you live like these people. You think they're far away. In contrast, A social media influencer is like your best friend, is like your neighbor next door, is someone you can relate to because it is someone who seems to live a similar lifestyle a little bit better than you so that it can be aspirational, but not too distant so that you can still relate. So that's what made influencer marketing powerful in the first place. It's your best friend telling you to buy the product. However, as some of those influencers take on more and more brand endorsements, they become disingenuous. And the return they deliver to brands is diminishing simply because they're no longer believable if they sell shoes on Monday, a watch on Tuesday, bleach on Wednesday, and makeup on Thursday. How is this going to evolve? It is going to be a very strong advertising channel however i think what's going to evolve is the mix of influencers meaning the smaller influencers are probably the ones that are going to do best because they remain true to themselves and relatable for their audience in market research it brings up a measurement challenge how do we capture this and as an industry i don't think we have a good solution quite yet. We don't have a good solution to capture the exposure, to know who 
has been exposed to what content and what brand. And we don't have a good solution yet to dig into the outcome, meaning did this brand endorsement, did this brand placement deliver any brand awareness and recall and purchase intent and all that. So for the time being, the metric of choice is going to be, are going to be lower funnel metrics, uh, unfortunately, meaning did people buy the product? Did people go to the website? From a consumer insight standpoint, brand awareness, all those upper funnel metrics, I don't think we have a good scalable cost-efficient solution yet. It's also interesting how Taluna, I've watched their brand over the last few, I try to watch all the brands, mm-hmm. but you know, they have a new classification or term for respondent, which is influencer. Mm. Yeah, which, you know, is, is actually very empowering on both on both sides of it. And I think a relatively, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't actually carry the same weight as like a gain, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk mm-hmm. or something, um, you know, these macros. But at a very, very micro level, I could see that kind of playing out. But, but it all of a sudden puts on almost a different like psychological hat for the respondent. And it, it feels a lot less, com- I feel a lot less commoditized as a respondent and a lot more empowered as a respondent. Yeah. And then obviously similarly, it, it creates this big, po- even though it's branding centric, it creates this big point of differentiation of, um, it actually reminds me of the original e-rewards later research now, mm-hmm. you know, which its whole value prop was around high quality not suggesting that Dynita has moved from that, but mm-hmm. you know, that was like, that was the teeth behind the machine. So are you seeing it overused? And I don't mean that in any disrespect to anybody who's using it mm-hmm. like Taluna, but, um, are, and, and maybe even expanded beyond the, the context of how it's originated. Yeah. So, so, sorry. So specifically what I'm asking is like, I'm, I'm seeing so originally like influencer marketing or influencers for me, were these people that had hundreds of millions of, or even hundreds of thousands of followers, and I actually, you know, cared a lot about them. And now we're seeing like the role of micro influencer becoming more and more important, even to the point of like, you know, as Taluna's cast the, their respondent pool as um, uh, influencers. Are, are you seeing this? It's almost like the term, the evolution of the term uh, materially changing. Indeed, indeed. I think the term is is a bit of a buzzword ill-defined in two ways. One, um, because, so one important metric is the size of the following, but really that's just one metric. What's most important in my opinion is the engagement, the level of engagement, and then also the level of specialization, because you can be an influencer in fly fishing and in knitting, and that's very strong for brands that try to penetrate these markets. You don't have to do anything mass market. You don't necessarily have to do fashion and makeup and lifestyle. So the terminology around influencer is evolving. And what is also misleading, I think, for brands, and that's where they need guidance, is some people define themselves as influencers and some people are influencers, meaning they have a lot of knowledge uh, they have a lot of expertise in an area and therefore they build a following. So my point is we have different levels of expertise and frankly, different levels of credibility within the influencer community. The most genuine influencers 
are the ones that started because they were experts in something. And again, it doesn't matter if that's fashion, makeup, fly fishing, or knitting. And based on this expertise, built a following. In contrast with uh, some people that seek fame and money that tend to first say, okay, I'm an influencer. And next thing, okay, what am I going to talk about? And that model is disingenuous and is not as desirable for brands, in my opinion. So brands need a lot of guidance in picking their influencers. Again, not so much in terms of the size of a following, because that's just the size of a panel. It doesn't mean that much. What matters is the engagement. What matters is the quality of the connection between the influencer and and his or her audience, more so than uh, hundreds right. of thousands right. or millions of followers. So, I mean, you've clearly identified some white space. I had actually never heard that cast exactly like that in our in in market research. Are you seeing specific firms, Cantar included, that are preparing to come to go to market with some level of expertise and helping? inform brands as to, you know, what's interesting about the influencer marketplace is it's a wild, wild west still. There is no like set understanding of what terms of trade look like. So are you, are you helping or is, or is there a company that's starting to bring to market those types of services? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so Cantar is here to measure and to provide clients with guidance as it pertains to influencers you have plenty of other firms that would hire the influencers and pick the influencers for you. So let me clarify. The job, the role of Cantar is to help predict, measure, optimize advertising effectiveness. And indeed, it's to help brands understand what marketing channels, what marketing strategy, what tactics are the most beneficial to their brands and ultimately to their sales. However, what Cantar doesn't do and and probably should not is help you pick the influencers themselves because that's more of the job of an agent, if you will. So agencies like Studio 71 and even the large talent agencies Jumping on this bandwagon, think of CAA, for example, and uh, that's the that's the work they do. That is to match your brand with the right influence, well, the right influencer with the influencers that they think is right for your brand, and negotiate those contracts because it gets very dicey. Obviously, it's literally like hiring artists, right? But the difference is you have to do this at scale. If a brand wants to hire Justin Timberlake or Taylor Swift. Well, that's a big chunk of money for sure. But if anything, that's one or two conversations. If a brand wants to hire a bunch of influencers, now all of a sudden it can become 12, right. 20, 50 conversations. Right. And that's a full-time job. All right. So fast forward in the book, you have this discussion around the sacred, the secular, and the new preachers, which I don't know if you know or not, but my undergrad was in theology and, and uh, uh theology and philosophy. So I found this, yeah, this was actually for me the most interesting thing I have read and I can't even remember when. And so you've, you've got this, this great quote, Google is not a search engine. Google is an atheistic God. Where do we pray? Where do we send information? Hope there is divine intervention and get a better answer back. Our new answer is the new God, Google. 
I started thinking about it, and and first of all, it's this crazy connection that you made, and I completely see how it's entirely true. You know, you think about how much information I put into Google. Some of it I'd be very embarrassed if, if you know people found out about it. And uh, so, in a lot of ways, in every mm-hmm. way, probably Google knows me a lot better than almost everybody else. Um, maybe even everybody else. So it's this super interesting. And then you're right. There's this, there's this connection of like, I need information or an answer. And so in the way that perhaps I would have gone before to something like, uh, or I mean me metaphorically, you know, one would, would go to prayer or what have you. Now all of a sudden there's this, you know, inkling of boom, Mm -hmm. just go Mm -hmm. to, um, go to Google. I actually wrote a blog post years ago on how Google's displaced dads. You know, so I, I used to go to my dad on how do I change a <laughs> yeah. tire? And now I go to Google. <laughs> so, but you're right. It kind of like, it moved. Mm-hmm. It was like, mm-hmm. how did you wind up making those connections, putting those pieces together? Yeah, well, that ties back to how I wrote the book. And uh, I think it's by looking around me, again, being curious. So we're, we're going back to your very first question and finding a pattern around me that maybe other people don't see. And um, it has to do with what I read and the people I listen to, but it also has to do a lot with simply walking down the street, taking pictures, and again, finding that pattern, and then looking at statistics. So uh, church attendance in the US is sharply declining. Besides a few mega churches, most churches are losing members, double digits. So why is this? And through research, that's how I found out that people still believe in a higher power. However, brands are taking on the role of the church. So Google is one starting point in the book, but There are many other metaphors, and one being the Apple Store, for example. And the Apple Store is really a metaphor for a cathedral, in my opinion. And what I mean by this is, so last week I was in London, for example, and there is an Apple Store on Regent Street. And clearly, I looked at all the other stores in that street, and the Apple Store has the biggest doors, has the the tallest doors of the entire street, Why? Because it gives you the impression when you walk in that you're walking into something that's larger than yourself. Those doors, those large doors, don't serve any functional purpose. In fact, they're a nightmare from an AC or heating standpoint. In short, the Apple stores a metaphor for a cathedral. Uh, a group workout now, think of Soul Cycle. Soul Cycle is a metaphor for a cult like experience. And that's not even my read, that is Soul Cycle saying so. When they wanted to take the company public, when they filed their S1 filing with the SEC, it clearly states in their S1 filing that Soul Cycle is much more than a workout. It is a cultish, a cult-like experience where members gather around a priest, meaning an instructor, or should I say around an instructor that endorses the role of the priest. So 
that's how this chapter came together, starting from um, the fact that people don't go to church as much and noticing around me that brands take on the role of religions. Yeah, you have this um, one section which I highlighted, uh, and it, the section inside of this inside of this last chapter, we want to belong. And the part that really stuck out to me is you you say experiences shared with others are some of the most anticipated, enjoyable, and memorable. The emotions that transpire from these experiences provide the foundation for a community. As individuals and consumers, we become members of tribes that are defined by our hobbies, passions, and shared emotions rather than demographics such as age, gender, and income. And so when you pull that out, I mean, it just like turns on its head, even the demographic section of a survey, which, you know, I don't know percentage wise, mm -hmm. but I'll make it up anyway, you know, could be 15% of the questions that are asked. Yes. And Jamin, I think demographics are shallow and they're an old fashioned way to do research and to target people in general. And here's what I mean. Yeah, it's fine to collect demographics. It's still important. But unless you sell housing or cars, I would argue that most demographics don't matter that much. My point is to say, if you want to go to Joe and the Juice or to Blue Bottle Coffee, where coffee is very expensive at these places, you're looking at five, six, seven dollars a cup. If you want to be part of the tribe, if you want to be part of the experience, if you want to be that artsy, cool freelancer who drinks coffee at Joe and the Juice, you'll be willing to pay $6 for that. It doesn't have much to do with the functional benefit of the coffee, meaning how good the coffee tastes. And in my opinion, it has nothing to do with your income. It has very little to do with your educational background and any other demographic we could look at. I don't care if you earn $12,000 a year as a part-time store associate or if you earn $1.2 million a year as a CEO of a public company. If you want to be part of the tribe, if you want to be part of that crowd of people like you, that drink coffee at Joe and the Juice, you're going to find the $7 to buy that cup of coffee. Yeah, it's, it's such a, it's such a, my, my, uh, actually, I, one of my best friends, he and his wife own a local shoe store here in Fresno uh, called Fleet Feet, which Fleet Feet is a larger brand, but mm. um, uh, they own, you know, just one of the, the, the local version of it. So uh, they're, Originally, when big, so they were, a, you know, a big deal, relatively speaking, in a for a you know single location, uh, local retailer, and then over the twenty years that they've oper owned and operated the business, of course, big boxes played a big part in that, and it ate up a lot of share. They kind of sucked it up through that, and then started focusing more and more on healthy community, and now they're they're growing at an astronomical rate. It's actually really interesting. It's almost hilarious. The percentage growth that they have on a month over month basis. And it's because they've pivoted the business over the last three years on, up to, on creating these experiences for their constituents, as opposed to sh selling shoes. They make their money selling shoes, but everything that they do, I mean, you yeah. wouldn't know that, right? I mean, nobody goes there to quote unquote buy shoes. You got it right there. I think that's, that's it right there. And it's the same thing 
for restaurants, it's the same thing, uh, beverages, coffee. Uh, the point is not to sell shoes, clothes, or coffee. Not to mention that when it comes down to the product itself, you almost never can compete with Amazon on price on inventory. Uh, my point is that if you want to buy shoes, and uh, my guess is this store, uh, your friend in Fresno, let's say that they have 200, 300 different shoes, um, max if that, in their store, my guess is Amazon has dozens of thousands. Exactly. So you don't go to the store to buy shoes, and you certainly don't go to the store because it's going to be cheaper than Amazon because it will not be. You go there for the yeah, experience. And in many times, we, we will buy shoes, and I've seen uh, my peers buy shoes from them that honestly, there's, I mean, for obviously cheaper online, but not, might not have been the exact mm -hmm. pattern or what have you. In other words, I could have bought all that right. online and had a better quote unquote shoe or more fulfilling shoe, but it just isn't about that at all. Precisely. No, you're right. So we are really late on time. This is this episode has gone super long. I could talk to you forever about the content in here, it feels like, and I hope to <laughs> later maybe over some wine. But mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to end on this question. What is your motto? Oh, wow. That's really a great question. Um, my motto, it, I'm, look, we're coming full circle because it comes back to uh, my parents, it comes back to how I started my career and how I built my career. And my motto is, um, well, I I'm going to give it away, but is at the end of the book is to say, we're on a quest for meaning. We all are, I am, you are, and our listeners, we all are on a quest for meaning. And this is not, there is no end to this project. This is not an end project, it's an ongoing, discovery of the world around us. So it's not about achieving a hypothetical end goal. It's really about the quest itself. And my motto is to say, back to social media, um, my motto is to say, don't just follow, uh, explore. So don't just follow people on social media or leaders, but explore, explore for yourself and explore with these uh, people you admire. My guest today has been Emmanuel Probst, author, UCLA professor, and senior vice president of brand health tracking at Ipsos. Thank you very much, Emmanuel, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast. Thank you so much, Jamin, for having me. That was terrific. Thank you again. Everyone else, if you would please take the time, if you found any value in this episode, screen capture this, share it on social media. Ideally, you could um, link to Emmanuel and myself, both of which are on LinkedIn and Twitter. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com.